Thank you for downloading or podcasting this track. This recording has been remastered to provide the best sound possible given the audio environment of the original recording session. Mosaic Silver Spring is a faith community located just inside the Capitol Beltway in Montgomery County. For more information, please visit our website, www.mosaicsilverspring.org, and we'll see you in the neighborhood. Good morning, church. My name is Lucy, and I'm going to be reading from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and you can follow along. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, crafted in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together this morning as a body to worship and to hear your word preach. We pray that your spirit would equip Dan to share with us the message that you have for us this morning and that our hearts would be ready to receive your truth. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Lucy. All right. If you are involved in or into the world of tech, uh, maybe this address is familiar to you, uh, 367 Addison Avenue. Now, maybe for most of us, that's just some random numbers and a random street name. But at this house, particularly in the standalone one-car garage, it is where William R. Hewlett and David Packard founded a tech company known as Hewlett Packard, or HP as we know it today. Instead of moving to the East Coast and joining the well-established firms in the East, these two students took, the, uh, took their ideas and started implementing them in their garage. Uh, Olivia Erlanger and Luis Ortega Cavella write about this in their book titled Garage because they unpack how the garage uh, became more than just a place where you park your car. It is instead a symbol, uh, not only of Silicon Valley's tech industry, but it became a symbol of innovation, hard work, ingenuity, and some grit. You know, isn't it fitting that many major tech companies today have their fable, uh, have the fabled garage origin story? Steve Jobs and Apple, it was in a garage. Google started in a garage with uh, up the garage of the current CEO of YouTube. Amazon, you guessed it, 
It started in a garage. And, I, you know, I use air quotes and because we might unpack it and say maybe that's not quite the case, but there is that trend because before it became an overused cliche or a meme, uh, it offered that subversive rags-to-riches story because it wasn't the well-established corporations with all the money and resources that moved technology forward. No, it was, as these companies would tell the story, it was little guys roughing it out in their garage, those who just had a dream and used their intelligence to create something out of nothing. I think the icon of the garage is a helpful picture of how we can approach Paul's letter to the church of Ephesus. In a time when militaristic might of the Roman Empire ruled the land, uh, in a time when competing cultures divided the church from within, Paul presents the ascended Christ. We saw last week, as he said in chapter 1, starting from verse 20, uh, who, uh, Christ, who was raised from the dead and seated uh, at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the age to come. This ascended Christ is the one whom we follow, but his rise to his rule and dominion was not ushered in through what was common according to the day. Uh, it came in a way that flipped expectations for real. It comes in a story that sounds more akin to the story of the garage than that mega corporation that has all of its resources. Here in chapter 2, we see that this ascended Christ ushered in his unending power and rule through humility. And we'll see that played out in three points this morning. One, we'll see it in destructive forces, declaration of grace, and direction of life. As Paul continues his letter in chapter 2, uh, while it might be uh, a little distracting to see it as a separate chapter, Paul writes in a continuous letter. So he's coming off the coattails of talking about Christ's ascended rule. And moving on from that, he pivots to show the state of humanity. And here we see a first sort of expectation flip. Uh, maybe an expectation flip that is more real for us than the first century church. Because when it comes to the deeper spiritual questions of life, uh, we might often come and think, oh, we're just a neutral agent. We're here trying to figure out what the most compelling option of faith might be. Maybe when we're thinking through questions of morality and being a good person, we may think, oh, I'm not that bad. Of a, I'm not that bad. I made mistakes here and there, but I'm, I'm bettering myself. Against this impulse, Paul gives the course correction we need to see that our situation is much more dire than we might think. As a matter of fact, uh, he says in verses 1 through 3, you are dead, that we are dead and enslaved. 
Here's what he says. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desire of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul uses these two illustrations, being dead and tied to that, being enslaved, to paint a full picture of what a dire situation we are in. First, dead in our trespasses. As he mentions this uh, twice in this chapter, he is recognizing that uh, he is shedding light for us to see our status and our agency. When I say being dead as a status, it means that the comparison game does not matter. No matter how good we think we are, no matter how small we think our sin is, before God, our sin means that we deserve judgment. Being dead uh, in terms of our status means that we're not here to compare, to say we're better than someone else, than the next person, but recognizing that our sin makes us children of wrath. Similarly, being dead in terms of our agency means that even our best efforts cannot save us. And so as we are confronted with the reality of our status and our agency, when we say that we are dead in our trespasses, uh, we need to do business with the ways that we might try to hide or perform. Are there ways in your life where you're trying to hide your flaws? Maybe you have a great poker face, uh, only presenting the best parts of you. Maybe you are very strongly motivated to perform, attempting to do the right things in order to prove yourself, to prove to others, or even prove to God that you are good enough. When Paul presents us with our deadness, figuratively speaking. We need to look inward and do business with the ways that we try to hide or perform. But being tied to that, uh, Paul also presents this picture of being enslaved. And he's not saying it explicitly per se, but he mentions how we walk or follow after the courses of this world. We are following the prince of the power of the air. We're following the course of this world. These are outside forces that are Um, that are pulling us one way or another, and there are inward passions, as he carries on in verse 3, that drives us away from God. And so as these outside forces blend together with our inward desires, it concocts a system that traps us, consumes us, and ultimately enslaves us. But here's the reality of the circumstance. Our death and enslavement Uh, is actually not often done through uh, these uh, landmark spiritual battles as if we're in a scene of a movie. It's often more like a death by a million cuts, a small nudge to the left until before you realize it, you've done a 180. Oftentimes, we are held captive by beliefs and attitudes that are not inherently bad at all, But when twisted with the reality of our own heart and our own sin, we stray away from God. Think about the constant messaging that we receive in our daily life. 
pursue what makes us happy. Now, at first glance, that sounds like a really great thing. Of course, it's good to be happy. God is not about being, God is not doing business about just being miserable all the time, yet there's that nudge to the left, that departure when we define happiness apart from God. When we are consumed by this pursuit of happiness where that is our ultimate aim, there's a sort of irony at work where that constant pursuit of happiness often leads us to actually feel more unhappy. That is the vicious cycle of enslavement that we face. That is just one of many examples. And so for us, it is a call to reflect what are the messages that we hear that nudge us away from who God has called us to be. It is through these nudges, so to speak, that we stray away from God. We are trapped, enslaved, and ultimately dead in our trespasses. Now, that sounds pretty grim, but we need to remember that that is not the whole picture. Paul, again, is starting off with the reality of the resurrected Christ above every power and authority. And he continues uh, as we read chapter 2 to remind us of that again, because though we were dead in our trespasses, though the outside forces feel overwhelmingly powerful, that Paul interjects with a second flip of expectations, but God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And here's what I mean by the flip of expectations. Why would God, the one who's been slighted, sinned against, betrayed over, over again throughout history, why would this God respond with mercy and love? Why would he pursue us when we are so helpless that Paul would say that we are actually dead? The reality of the situation is that while we may not be able to comprehend or while we may not be able to give ten reasons why God should love us, the reality is that he does love us. And he did take the necessary steps for us to be made alive again. There's a second, or third, I should say, expectation flip here as well. God accomplished the necessary steps. He made us alive, not by force, not by militaristic might, which might have been common at that time. He accomplished his victory over evil and of the powers of this world through his death. Through his death on the cross, we who were once dead can be made alive. It is that It is Christ's death, that work on the cross, where our status is reversed, where our past history is forgiven, expunged, no longer held against us. It is through Christ's resurrection that we are now alive, and we have agency to change, not to prove ourselves, but because we are already made new. 
maybe the greatest expectation flip of all here in this passage is that it's a free gift. The newness of life that we have is not done, not accomplished by anything we have earned or have proven, but it is something that God gifts us. Something that we can't say, I've done my part, now God meets me halfway. God went the full way to give you this gift of new life, of forgiveness, and of hope. Paul says this in uh, Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not of your own doing, but it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that none may boast. It is by grace that we can move past the destructive forces of this world by the inward realities of our own sin. And it is by this grace that we can find freedom from the corrosive desires of our hearts and move towards the direction of life. If we just stop at, it is a free gift, it might, we might miss out on the full picture of God's victory over evil. Here we see that not just, uh, that in the movement of God's work of salvation, we are not just turning away from evil, but we are turning to live uh, towards what is good. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Maybe it's helpful to put it this way. Uh, When we hear the workmanship of God, maybe there's a lot of different images that come to your mind. For those who are uh, savvy towards art, you might think, wow, what a beautiful painting that is displayed on the wall. Maybe some of you might think if you're athletic, oh, wow, what a wonderful trophy in, on the shelf that can remember the great accomplishments we have done. And while that might be one way to look at workmanship, I think here in this text, uh, we could think of workmanship not like the National Portrait Gallery where we can appreciate the history of great artists, but it's more like the Museum of Illusions. Here's what I mean by that. In the National Portrait Gallery, again, we can walk through wonderful exhibits that connect us to history and the creativity of those around us, and there is great value to that. It is very good, but when we walk through it, we are just passive observers. We just look at the things that other people have done, and we do absolutely nothing. But here at the Museum of Illusions, one that we could also see in D.C., uh, we not only look at these optical illusions, but we participate in them. The draw of that museum is that we are the ones taking the picture in that room where we look upside down. We can participate in the perspective shifts to create those illusions as well. We are involved in the art. So, too, when we look at the work of God's salvation, we are... Yes, recognizing that it's all done by grace, but now, in response to God's grace, we participate in the masterpiece of God's plan of salvation. We're going to unpack that a little more in the coming weeks, what walking in good works will look like, uh, as well as how it applies in community, uh, how it applies in different areas of our lives, but I do want to leave it at this. Uh, Just as much as we can be led astray by the nudges of our own sin, 
and the pressures weighing against us, we can actually redirect ourselves towards faithfulness and good works through the daily habits we practice. Now, as we work through these practices, we're not trying to cover up our failures. We're not trying to hide our mistakes. We recognize that it's covered in Jesus fully. Now, when we practice good works, we're not trying to prove ourselves. We've already been given, we've been gifted the inheritance. Yes, the full act of salvation is accomplished through Jesus by his spirit, but for us, we can pursue faithfulness because we recognize that is the true path to life. We want to pursue true happiness. We follow what God has called us to be so we can find that to be true. We can pursue faithfulness knowing that in Jesus, the promise of life everlasting is a reality waiting to be actualized. And so maybe one way that we could take it away is as we look through the worship guide and as we look through the elements of today's service, this is a helpful guide to help us practice what faithfulness looks like at home. As we read God's word, we engage with it. As we pray for ourselves and for our community around us, that is an act, a habit of worship that helps us walk in faithfulness. As we confess our sins day by day, we remember and reflect on the grace of God and the goodness of that grace so that we can continue moving forward. May we as a church, individually and collectively as a community, practice these habits of grace, knowing that in them we are not trying to prove ourselves, but we're just tasting more and more of the goodness of God that he made real to us through his son. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father God, we thank you that, God, you have freed us from the reality of our circumstances, that though we were dead, you have made us alive. And so now as a church that is alive in Christ, may we pursue faithfulness. Again, not because we have to meet you halfway, not because we have to work up to your approval, but because we are already seen as perfect children, as heirs, as beloved not because of anything we have done, but because of the free gift of God offered in Christ Jesus. May we pursue faithfulness in response. It is in your name we pray. Amen.